Hello. Hello and welcome to another episode of Where's My Freaking Dressing Room, a podcast where we discuss the world of classical music and what things are really like backstage. My name's Helen. And my name's Alex. And today we're really excited to be joined by composer, pianist and creative coder Larkal. Larkal has built an incredibly varied and diverse career from being a coder with Shazam to an award-winning pianist. And today we're talking to him in his capacity as the composer of his brand new immersive album, Say You're With Me. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. Thank you for having me. Hello. We'll just kick off with a nice, uh, simple question. We'd love to hear about your brand new immersive album. Tell us all about it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm very excited about it. I'm also very on the inside of it. So it's it's an album of piano music that I worked on with a lot of friends. So there's um, some electronics, there's some cello, there's some brass, there's all sorts of things. And what the album has that sort of sets it apart are these live visuals. So when I perform, there's a, a computer system that I've developed that will listen to what I'm playing and not just react to the sound, but understand what's musically important in the sound. So it can respond differently to melody notes versus accompaniment. Uh, it knows when section changes happen in the music. So it can say, you know, you get to section C and the visuals change in some way. And all of that happens live. So I can play a bit faster or slower, I can be flexible, and the visuals all adapt in real time to that. Um, so the performance is never the same. I mean, because a musical performance, of course, is never the same. And so the visuals are a different experience every single time. That's incredible. How, like, how does the technology uh, know to respond? I know it sounds like a, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like a machine responding to how you play. Yeah. The key thing that makes it work is that what I write is notated music. And so there's a machine readable version of the score. So the computer knows what should come next. And computationally, that is a lot easier than if you just ask a computer like, hey, what notes am I playing? Uh, if you're just singing, then that is, you know, that can work. As you add more and more notes, that becomes more difficult. And on the piano, you can be playing loads of notes at once and sometimes very quickly. And so if you just sort of say, what notes am I playing? A computer really struggles with that. But if you say, hey, this note comes next, have I played it yet? That's a much simpler question to ask the computer. So that's kind of the, the key way that I make all this happen live is to tell the computer what is, what is going to happen and so it can follow along with that. In that sense, it's a lot more like playing chamber music. Um, that, you know, in that, or, or working with a conductor, I guess that, you know, if I go a little faster or slower, it'll, it'll know. But also if I sort of go slower than usual, sometimes you can see it just taking a second to adapt that it'll, the events will sometimes trigger just slightly before I play a note for a, a few notes. And then it'll, it'll realize that and draw the tempo back and, and be following me. And so there's this real push and pull that, uh, that I, I, I really enjoy working with. Yeah, I bet. So you kind of interact with what's happening on the screen in a, in a rather than it just being the, the image reacting to the music, it's almost like a symbiosis. They're both reacting to each other. Very much so, yeah. There's one piece that I'm thinking of with that where there is a poem and each time I play a note in the piece, a new line of text comes up and the mm. text includes the notes that I'm playing. So I, if I play an F, there's an F in the line. 
And um, the the timing is really dependent on what's musically appropriate, but also like people have to read the text, right? So mm-hmm. it, so if it was a space where it felt natural to play a bit faster, I still need to leave. Like I can't go so much faster that people can't read it. Um, and there's also just, I don't know how far away people are, how it feels. There, there's a, a thing when you perform, right? Where you're kind of taking into account like the acoustics and how the audience feels and all of this. And you decide whether something should go faster or slower. And you're not even necessarily thinking like, oh, yes, I will do this part faster because the acoustics are dry. Like it's just, you just do what's appropriate, right? As a musician. And so there's this other layer of that, which is c- kind of taking into account the the readability of it in addition to the musicality of it and and so yeah so i'm kind of watching it out of the corner of my eye saying you know is it have they had time to read it yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, why did you decide to to have these visuals as well what prompted you yeah 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 i've always been kind of geeky and enjoyed computer stuff uh and you know as well as music and for a really long time i've been looking for ways to kind of to smash them together uh and and have different things you know, affect different things or control different things or different ways to use technology uh, and music at the same time. And the visuals really came out of one of these kind of gradual processes where it's easy to look back and say, oh, yes, I did this and this and this, and now I have this yeah. performance practice and involving these. But it, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something with the data that comes from performing. Um, and when I bought my piano at home, I bought it at auction and it's a, a disc clavier. So it has the sort of the sensors in the keys and you can yeah. get, you can get this note data out of it, but you know, it's a normal acoustic piano. It's not an electric piano or anything. And so when I recorded my 2019 album, I recorded that all at home and I recorded the audio and then also all of the note data, not really knowing what I wanted to do with it. And so after it was recorded and I, you know, I'd had this album done and kind of in the mixing stage i started playing around with different ways to visualize it and that yeah. just gradually led to this live visuals system that's so cool can i can i also ask another question sorry i'm just really curious about yeah, this yeah. when you listen to i don't know say if you were to listen to a beethoven symphony do you think about visuals now when you're listening to other music yeah i i definitely do and cool. i mean one of the things that i'm thinking about in the future is do i want to start playing other people's music yeah. Uh, because I'm, you know, I come from a classical background and I'm playing this music that's kind of this like, I mean, people call it all sorts of things like indie classical, post-classical, but it, it mm. leads to this question a lot of like, what does classical mean in this context? Uh, and for me, one of the things that makes me feel classical is just that I have this classical background, that I have this kind of really classical sensibility in what I do. But one of the things that feels really not classical is that I just play my own music. And obviously there are loads of classical composers and, you know, composer performers who did play a lot of their own music, but it, you know, compared to someone who plays completely someone else's music or primarily someone else's music, you know, it, it feels less classical. It feels more like I'm a, a solo artist or whatever we call that other kind of music. And it's not that I feel like I need to be one thing or the other, but it's uh, because I have this kind of classical background, I think that it would be really interesting to do, yeah, visuals for Bach, visuals for, you know, Beethoven Sonata, visuals for... And, and also to apply it for chamber music, because this doesn't have to be a, a just a piano thing. I could be playing with other musicians and have, you know, okay, the cello responds to this and the viola responds to, you know, has this this visual element. And, and yeah, so lots of 
lots of things I want to play with in the future. Yeah, sounds so exciting. Yeah, we were saying beforehand, uh, you know, as we were listening through to the album, that we, we really like the title. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that in relation to the, to the songs, the pieces, the, the titles of those tracks, how that all kind of came about. Yeah, yeah. So this, I mean, like, like everything, this is just going to be a recurring theme where I say it, you know, it came about through this kind of like unconscious thing. And then after it was, after I'd chosen it, I realized that it was a really appropriate title. So like a lot of composers, I have this list of words and phrases that I think are neat that I might apply to something in the future. And yes. uh, often when I have, you know, oh, I have this album and like, it's going to need a title and, and what, so it, it wasn't like it was there from the beginning. And then I wrote all this music knowing that it would be part of Say You're With Me, the album. It, it So I think it's appropriate for this album because of the, like the mental health angle and because of, you know, the, that I wrote some of these pieces while I was experiencing depression. And then some of them as I was uh, coming out of that and, you know, being treated and regaining uh, my mental health. And you can really kind of hear that in the pieces that some of them are in this real sort of still internal place. And some of them are really exuberant and and more, you know, let's go live life kind of vibe. Um, the other aspect of it is that the last album was just solo piano. There aren't any other instruments on it. And this one is me and all of my music friends. <laughs> so so it is, you know, a lot of people with me uh, on the album. And, and that is the title. The secret of the title, where it came from, is that it was um, the subject line of a fundraiser email for Obama's first presidential campaign. No way! And I heard of it because someone was talking about the ability to sort of just capture... Uh, a feeling in a really short sentence, you know, that you're not saying something sort of explanatory and you're just saying this really short evocative thing. And that was one of the examples that I thought, that's great. And I didn't think, ooh, I'm going to call my album that right away. I just thought, that's a nice phrase. I'll write it down. And it kind of just sat there on my list of things until I thought, actually, yeah, that is that is the perfect thing to call this album. We we just wanted to know more about how, how you composed the total work, really, yeah. of, of this album, you know, we're both we both listen to a lot of varied music yeah. uh whatever opera classical yeah. more more contemporary stuff and for us it sort of felt like it was being constructed in blocks of cells which sort of built 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 to a climax and then died away sort of thing um and it also felt very meditative as well mm, just mm. wondered mm. whether we've got the right end of the <laughs> stick there or, or or we're totally off the wrong path how, how did you come about it yeah, yeah. So I write at the piano usually, um, and I write with with a combination of like my ears and my fingers, which is a kind of funny way to put it. But that it's yeah. you know there are ideas that I will have, you know, kind of from the more classical composer side, where I I hear something and then I want to go play that thing, and then sometimes there will just be a kind of a, a physical texture or a a way of approaching the piano that my hands know from just playing so much piano music and I'll sort yeah. of play something and surprise myself and say oh that's interesting and then sort of revise that toward where my ears say the piece should go so there's a lot of of working with the piano um I write onto paper I do so I handwrite everything um because nice. partially because I have the memory of a goldfish and so it's really like <laughs> I, I have you know I have an idea for how the whole piece should go but I need yeah. to write down every little bit as I kind of decide what it is um yeah and then I put it into the computer and print it out and then 
sort of play from that and then I sort of scribble out bits and add bits into the the printed out copy add in those changes and then that process just repeats a lot of times until there are no more changes and then eventually you know and and I used to kind of think god am I just gonna keep changing this forever because you can just keep changing stuff but there does come a point where I think oh no that's that's it that's done that's you know I you could make changes but it's that that that's a finished piece um, and one of the things with that is that I have sheet music just ready to go for all of the pieces. That's one of the things that I have, you know, sort of as merch is if, you know, a lot of people who come to my show are pianists. It's sort of pianists and software developers, I think, are my like core core audience. Um, mm. And um, and so, yeah, a lot of times people are interested in playing the music themselves. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to have that. The album as a whole, are you composing like as a as a whole body like an hour of music or is it more like as the songs develop you're like you know you choose the order how they feel as as one kind of through through yeah i, I just was yeah curious. I'd, I'd like i'd like to say that i sort of have a grand plan for an hour of music but it's it's a lot more of, of sequencing and yeah, yes. sort of saying i have these pieces you know not every piece makes it onto the album so there are some other pieces that are written and then like they don't fit or they're just not as good as the other ones um and so you kind of decide what's in there and then what order makes sense and the order for an album isn't necessarily the order for live performance case in point being the last track on the album which is called opening which is kind of i you know i mean some would say i could have picked a different title for it given its position there but that's generally the opening piece i play live and it's nice, a great opening nice. piece for, you know, for a concert. I come out and it's just these sort of resonant chords, but it just isn't the right first piece for this, for this album. And so last on the album, first in the set, there you have it. Wow, I that's like great. That. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've, you've just started talking there a bit about kind of mental health and how closely mm. it kind of relates to, to the work you've done here on here on this album and um from our perspective we've just run a short mini series talking about mental health various conditions that mm-hmm. people experience in kind of the classical music industry and we found it's it's so promising to see more and more people open and and willing to talk about mental health and their experiences i wondered if you'd feel able to share a bit more uh with us about your kind of experiences with mental health and you know how either music's kind of been a part of that whether it, whether it's helped hindered yeah i mean whatever you would feel comfortable in in sharing with us sure yeah 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 it's for me it's i'm comfortable kind of talking about any of it i feel like that's a way in which i'm very american i'm just sort of yeah, <laughs> yeah. i'll talk about whatever um <laughs> it, it, often what it is is that what feels kind of contextually appropriate right and i think this is behind I think sometimes people don't want to talk about it because they feel embarrassed or ashamed or or they don't want to burden other people. And I think sometimes it's just it just feels strange to kind of be talking to friends and then bring up, oh, by the way, here's this very serious sort of mental health thing that's going on with me. So uh, this really came into a sort of critical phase after my second child was born and uh, have as any listeners who have children know it is very easy for that to affect your mental health uh, it's you know it's just it's a very big thing um, but the the hope of course is that as you sort of settle into your new patterns um, that you then regain that and in this case I, I really hadn't but um, I didn't really label it as depression I was just kind of cranky all the time and nothing was 
fun and I was just, it was really, you know, it was really easy to get angry at stuff. And I wasn't like lashing out at people. It was just kind of, I was going around with this kind of cloud over my head. Yeah. Uh, and there were a lot of things where I, I would think to myself, like, this is an objectively fun thing. You know, I'd be out on a sunny day with the kids and, you know, and it just didn't, it didn't feel fun. It was like, I would describe this as fun and I might remember this later as fun, but I'm not having fun and I kind of couldn't access that. And um, and I met up with a friend for coffee who had just finished her PhD and she mentioned that she had essentially had uh, treatment for depression over the last year of that. And that was how she could finish her PhD uh, that, that she in a kind of similar way had had been just pushing herself through things, but not really enjoying any of it and and just became less and less able to actually do the things she needed to do in order to, you know, carry on with a PhD, which I can only imagine. I think mm. a lot of people finishing PhDs have have struggles like this because it is, you know, you've gone so far down this, this I don't know, hallway of knowledge toward, yeah. you know, whatever that thing is that you're studying. Um, but it, I was really, I am still really grateful to her for just sort of saying, oh yeah, you know, I did this thing and, or like, I, you know, I, I had this experience and I went and talked to a doctor and they gave me some drugs and... They worked and now I've, you know, I was on them for about a year and then I went off them and it was just a really positive experience because I think we hear about it so often when someone has drugs that don't work or when someone has a doctor who doesn't listen to them or when someone's, you know, they've sort of tried everything and they're desperate and that's horrible. But I think it's really important to talk about the times that do work because I think part of the reason that I wouldn't have thought before that to talk to a doctor about it is just because I'd, I'd heard, you know, I hadn't consciously said, oh, there's nothing doctors can do for me. Like I'm very pro doctor, but I just, it hadn't occurred to me that it was yeah. a problem I could just kind of go work on solving. Um, yeah. You know, I tried exercising and meditating and I think those things helped in combination with the drugs but I was yeah. definitely at a point where the the drugs were the thing that that really helped make a difference and so yeah. great pro drugs as well <laughs> what yeah. did you what did you feel that they did for you how did they help make that difference mm. um the phrase that my partner said is uh she said it's like the giant hand that was squeezing you started to let go which kind of made me feel like, oh, wow, yeah, it was really apparent, <laughs> you know, because again, I, did, I wasn't that aware of how, I didn't really know how bad it was until I started to feel better and, and then feel like, oh, oh, yeah, this is feeling, this is actually feeling nice. Like, I haven't felt this in a while. Yeah. And so, yeah, it just, it was just a, a feeling of, of things being all right, you know, that I would be doing just yeah hanging out with a kid or cooking dinner or do you know whatever the thing was and just being like yeah this is this is fun. this is a nice thing to be doing right now yeah. um which is so so valuable because that's all you have is all the things you do in your life in order <laughs> and you can you can try to do things that are more fulfilling but like at some point you've got to cook dinner uh mm -hmm. and yeah. there are things about being a parent that are amazing and wonderful and there's also just a lot of sort of dog's body like oh like you know this thing like this kid needs to be fed this kid needs to be you know read a story that they've chosen this story every single night for 18 months um, yeah. and I'm gonna read it to them again yeah. uh, and and I you know now when I do that it's sort of you know, like with a little chuckle and oh yes we're reading this one once more <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> you know versus like oh like I just want this to be done so I can go do whatever other thing. And it wasn't that that other thing was important. It's just that I didn't really have access to that 
enjoyment of the moment. Yeah, I really understand. Yeah. And and alongside kind of medication, which I'm really, I think it's so important that we talk about it. And I'm, and we've t- we've spoken to a few people that have said about the, the benefits of medication. Mm-hmm. Did you have any kind of additional coping techniques or methods, maybe things that you turn to? I'm, I'm just curious as to what you felt did work for you uh, in, in handling difficult mental health periods. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, exercise is really great. The thing yeah. that actually, aside from my friend telling me about her experience, the other thing that got me to go in sort of that day was I was actually out for a run and I was too angry to keep running. Um, and <laughs> oh. I, was, I was like, well, this, you know, <laughs> this is not going to work that's if I can't yeah, do yeah. the thing that's actually yeah helping. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, being into it and then yeah, getting back into exercise was great. Uh, meditation is great. I use this app called Headspace, which mm-hmm. um, yeah, we both yeah. Yeah, it's one of yeah, the really yeah. popular ones. It's yeah, uh, I like popular it. I love Andy. for a reason, though. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, it's... yeah, 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 yeah. And it's I mean, I think so. So many apps are there's such a downward price pressure on them where people either you know yeah. just refuse to pay anything for an app no matter what, or you know an yeah. app is ninety nine p and that's it, and nobody will ever pay more than that. And yep. so it feels like this expensive thing, but then it's like, well, I mean. You know, if you are using it every day, it's really good. It's yeah, yeah. yeah, It's it's um, it's yeah, yeah. I think it's it's a great tool. Um, The other thing is um, uh, microdosing, uh, which is a thing that I don't know if this is a thing you've you've heard about or come across, but um, very popular in the kind of Silicon Valley startup. Yes, yes. Scene, and um, and that has a real similar effect, I think, to the antidepressants uh, Uh in that it lets you really be in the moment and feel just really good about stuff but not in a like sort of rave you know lovey like can't focus kind of way it's just it's a bit like having a coffee that kind of also makes you feel a bit creative and just really content um Mm -hmm. yeah so so that i found how interesting i mean that's just a thing that we're talking about kind of as a society right now i think there's there's research happening that uh, a lot of the research is like, oh, there's no effect. Um, and really? having done it, I mean, maybe it's all placebo, right? There's no, you can't yeah. really say, oh, it doesn't feel like placebo. Like, that's not mm-hmm. a thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so who knows? But that's, I think, a, a valuable thing to consider. I mean, I think there, there's also getting the work, the kind of day job versus creative life balance right and also i mean there's the work-life balance obviously but there's kind of i think for those of us who are doing creative work but not at a level where it like pays your mortgage Mm -hmm. um there is something else you do that that brings in money and so there's kind of three aspects it's not just work life but it's like work life creative practice or whatever yeah Yeah, and getting that balance right i think is is really important too because there's a period where i was just full-time on day job stuff and really trying to squeeze in music like into the gaps and there just aren't a lot of gaps especially as a as a parent um and so i've reworked that so that i have some smaller clients that i spend less time with so i can have you know it can kind of be an equal balance between the creative practice and the the day job stuff which feels so much nicer and can i just ask i know you said that you went through maybe a little dip and now you're coming out of your uh difficulties do you do you still keep up with the headspace and the regular exercise and all the things that you were implementing then or have you sort of let them go and now now that you're in a better headspace yeah i um i do 
regularly use Headspace. Uh, not every single day, but I'm, you know, I give myself a, a sort of a, a B on that uh, American <laughs> grading, grading system there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, and I mean, running, I'm, I used to run a lot. I've, I've done, you know, sort of marathons and stuff. And nice. um, I'm definitely not in that kind of shape right now. Uh, so that's something that I aspire to get back to. But I, I'm more active, I think, than, you know, than I was. I think that's something we've been talking about recently. Like, we come to all these things, these ideas, these coping mechanisms, often when we're not feeling so well, but it's like, it's maintenance. This, this kind of self-care almost needs to be happening even when you're feeling the best of the best so that, you know, when things aren't so good, you have, you know, a toolkit, a set of resources that you can turn to uh, to, to to help you in, in times of difficulty. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a real thing of, of knowing of like being aware of what it's like for your mental health to be different, you know, kind of being, being if it, when you're aware of that, then you can notice smaller changes and then start to address them before it yeah. becomes yeah. A, a big deal. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so just to kind of feed off what you were saying there about a kind of work-life balance, managing the day job versus the rest of your life. Um, yeah, something we, we really enjoyed kind of reading about you was the exceptionally varied career that you have from kind of pianist, composer, working as a coder with Shazam. For us, that's kind of like the ultimate like portfolio career using the multiple strings that you have to your bow to to create something that really works for you. And we were wondering, you know, how do you feel about that portfolio career now that you look at look at it? Are you, do you enjoy what you've built? Do you enjoy the various things that you do? How, how does it work for you? Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I have enjoyed all of the stages uh, along the way of, of kind of the, the, the different things that I've done. Uh, it's, it's only now felt like it's all been working towards something. I think until this point, it was like, you know, I was kind of doing music for a while, but I didn't really find a thing to do that was kind of my thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I got into tech and I was doing that and I I really enjoy it, but I Mm. kind of didn't want to just be, you know, doing, you know, going to an office and and just doing software. I think that can be really rewarding, but I, it just wasn't my thing to have that be, you know, my entire career. Uh, And now putting them together, like that expertise that I got working professionally in software is something that is like my superpower for like coming back and doing these things that, that usually when you see something with a tech element, there's someone who does the tech and there's someone else who does the performing. And it's, I mean, in a sense, it's annoying that it has to be me doing all of the things because it does, it is just me doing all the things, but having it all be one artistic vision, I think helps the end product to really be cohesive rather than yeah. you know someone writes the music and someone else has an interpretation of that uh, the other thing that i think that i i it, it's important for me to be open about the way that my journey depends on me not coming from generational wealth that so often when you see someone who is a solo performer uh, especially when they achieve great things you know very early on um, they've just had the support of uh fortune and great. I mean, if I had that, I would 100% make use of it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. you know, the reason that I went to work at Shazam is because I was tired of being poor. Uh, I, was, mm. I was, you know, playing weddings uh-huh. and teaching and all those things were fine, but it's just a very difficult way to put a decent life together financially. 
Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that I found this thing that does make it, you know, uh, possible to earn a living in less than full time so that I have this other time to actually do the, the creative practice. And uh, hopefully that will turn into a, you know, something that will uh, support me <laughs> a bit more. Fully. Yes, yes. But there's no, you know, there's no guarantee, uh, especially with the the industry and the kind of streaming model being what it is. Uh, it's it's yeah. a lot easier to say, well, you know, I'm, I've got this album and I'm going on tour and I really hope it's a success. But it's not, you know, I don't lose my house if it isn't. It's just, yes. no, right. you know, there's, it's kind of, yeah. Um, it's like the equivalent of a rich family, but it's just a day job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So do you see, is the ultimate goal, say it's balanced like this with coding and and performing and creative side at the moment, do you, do you envisage the balance shifting so that it's almost 100% more creative work that you do? I would or? love for it to be 100% creative. Yeah, it's... Yeah. um. I mean, the the way that that happens is just things grow little by little and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that'll be feasible at some point. Yeah, this is the this is kind of the first big step of of putting this out there, doing a big tour, doing the Edinburgh Fringe run and hopefully making a splash with that, hopefully getting people out to see the show and like the show. And then, you know, you can kind of book bigger and bigger things from there. And what are you, is there sort of a message that you're hoping that this album will say to your listeners? I mean, I think there's a lot of the context around the album with, you know, the things we've talked about with the mental health aspect and and things like that. Musically, I think, you know, meditative is a, a word that you know that I've heard before and it's something that I like applied to my music Um, so I mean I think that there's a real sense of how how do I say this of a new thing that is a bit classical and also a bit not classical that there's a lot of people are exploring this space but I don't think anybody is in the exact space that I am and nice. so I, I think this is a, you know, a new point on that line between whatever the ends of the line are called, <laughs> classical <laughs> and non-classical, uh, a, you know, a, a way of writing music that is just nice to listen to, but also interesting composer, composer yeah. wise, uh, you know, that, that mm-hmm. sort of has some meat to it, but that isn't, uh, you know, ultra experimental. I think there's a, a mm-hmm. real place for that mm-hmm. kind of music. And, and I'm excited that it seems like the sort of classical music establishment is starting to see that value. Uh, I think 10 years ago, it was, you know, the worth of music was uh, very much down to its boundary pushingness. you know, that if, if you were yeah. sort of sonically pushing boundaries, then, well, you know, your, your well, background music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, there's a place to push boundaries. I love a lot of boundary pushing music, um, but I think there's a lot of ways to push boundaries that aren't just in the sort of pitch collections you use. I think that there's, mm-hmm. yes. you know, I, I think that focus prioritizes pitch in a way that is not appropriate to the whole nature of music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, last up, uh, you know, what's next for you after this album? Are there, are there any plans or albums in the pipeline? What are you, <laughs> what are you next turning your sights to? Yeah, I mean, I'm very focused now on sort of album, tour, fringe, it's, you know, it's a busy few months, so lots of that coming up. Um, I definitely have ideas for 
what I want to do next in terms of, you know, new ways to combine music and visuals. Um, Mm -hmm. I have some ideas about broadening out the live show beyond just projected visuals to have other sort of reactivity on stage happening with me. Uh, So... So those are all things that I, yeah, will be exploring kind of over the next year. And then we'll see. We'll see where those explorations end up. Super exciting. And where can people uh, listen to the album? It's, uh, I think, available on, on most streaming platforms, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. The best place to buy music from a musician, if you want to support them, is Bandcamp. Uh, so larkhall.bandcamp.com is a place that I really like sending people. Uh, I have my merch there <laughs> yeah. too. I send, I'm selling some uh, art prints of the visuals. So you can, you know, if you want to cool. have something, but if you kind of listen to your music on streaming, but you want to actually have a physical object, there's there's those. Um, but yeah, you know, Apple Music, Spotify, uh, any of the other ones, I'll be on there. Just yeah. search for Lark Hall. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And where else can our listeners get in touch with you? Are you on social media, website? Give us give us all the details. I am on the social media. Uh, so my website is larkhall.org and that has a list of shows. So upcoming shows all over the place. Exciting. So that's, you know, you can go there and see what, what's coming up. If there's something near you, I would love to see you at a show. Um, I'm on Instagram quite a lot because of the visual nature of what I do. So I'm posting things there. If you want to see me just sort of ranting about things, I'm on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, like I have a TikTok account. Maybe in the future I'll be more active there. I'm on YouTube. It's, you know, kind of all the things. Us but, too, but, yeah. Um, we're getting into like the old TikTok space. Yeah. Oh, yes, Love yes. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> gotta, gotta add some dancing or something to my yeah. show. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I I love I love when people say hi on there. It's it's great. I think sometimes people are sort of shy about it, but it's just like, nah, it's it's awesome. Anytime someone's like, hey, I saw you with the thing, or I heard you on the podcast, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. great, love it. Excellent. Well, I think yeah, that pretty much wraps it up from our end. So uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It's been so so interesting. Larkle's new album is uh, this will come out, so it'll be out now by the time this is released. So. Check it out. And uh, yeah, we've loved listening to it. We'll absolutely be listening again. Cool. Thanks for having me.